Kia ora, I'm Maria, I'm Māori and Pakia. And I'm Kate. And I'm Iranian-Australian. And you're listening to Being Biracial. The podcast all about navigating the world as a biracial person. We want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the unceded sovereign lands of the Boonwurrung and Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We offer our respect to the elders of these lands, past, present and those yet to come, and also acknowledge traditional custodians from the lands wherever this podcast is reaching you. Today we are going to be chatting to Elena Kunitaki about being biracial. Elena is an art director in the advertising industry. She kind of has a really social justice lens to that work actually as well and she's trying to change stereotypes one at, at a time. She is also a makeup and fashion queen who loves illustrating and being creative and we love that you're in the studio with us today and we are so excited to chat to you. Hello. Hi. <laughs> that was the best intro bio ever. You made me sound really good. So we always kick off the pod by asking, what is your mix? So my mix is British. Dad is British and my mum is Japanese. So actually no Australian in me at all. I'm just here because I moved here. So that's the plot twist a lot of the time. So you weren't born in Australia? No, no. So I actually came here two, seven. Seven years ago? Seven years ago. No Aussie connection by blood at all. Just just by just by choice. Came over here for uni. Oh, wow. How come you came over here for uni? Born and bred in the UK and was there till I was 14, year nine. And then mum wanted to move back to Japan. So me and my, I'm the only child. So me and my mum and dad moved to Japan and it was horrific. And I was in my prime adolescent teenage years and they decided let's move so sort of took my angsty self over to a really small part of um, Japan called Fukuoka. It was very homogenous, really no white people or foreign people to be seen um, for the most part so that gives context as to why it was quite horrific and then did seven years in Japan so all the way through to the end of high school and then um, moved to Australia because I wanted to go to uni in an English-speaking country again. And I actually couldn't go back to the UK without being considered a, a foreign student at that point. Something to do with birth certificates not being there long enough at the time. Very much like I'm going to be spending international fees anyway, so might as well go somewhere new. And my parents actually met in Australia in the 70s so it's a weird full circle moment and I was like okay let's do it let's go to Melbourne never been there before but why not when you're young you know you're kind of young and wild and a little bit stupid but in a good way so that's why I'm here yeah holy shit (laughs) yeah exactly that is a journey Kate what do you want to touch on first tell us about how your parents met in the 70s I believe they were backpacking as you did it's a bit like a movie storyline I kind of take it for granted but um dad was in Perth I think and mum was on a on a bus heading to Perth and they met each other fell in love did all of that and then I believe mum ended up moving to the UK (laughs) with my dad I think it was more of a holiday thing to start with um but then it became a bit permanent and it's pretty wild, really, for that that time, that era. She came from a really small little village in Japan and, you know, her parents, had, her family had never really met anyone who wasn't Japanese. So, yeah, they, they did quite a big thing at the time and then they just stayed there for, for however many years till I appeared into the picture. So that was in the, in the 90s. So mum did, mum did the UK for 20-plus years, I think. And that was the that was the shift to to move when I was in high school. It was like, okay, done my time in England. Let's go back to Japan for a bit and make that work. And 
Oh my god! Wow. <laughs> so, was it really controversial for your parents to be together? It sounds like it was. I think so. I think they. I. I don't know what you guys think, but I feel like with that generation of, um, I guess controversial relationships and and sort of race and that sort of thing, there was this sort of like survival lens that they put over it. So they never really told me anything about it. But like, as I've educated myself, I've sort of taught myself that okay, wow, like what they did was pretty controversial. And they just are sort of protecting me from it by not by not telling me about the the strain. But I can kind of see it a little bit in their actions and like how they, I guess, like want to look after me. We want to make sure you don't have that hardship, but they just don't tell you. I don't know if it's the same with you, you guys, but yeah, <laughs> I think that I think it was really hard for my parents to be together. Uh, my so in both of their families, they're the only one who is married. Like, so my my mum is the only one that has married a non-Iranian and my dad is the only one that has married a person of colour. In general, in Australian society, there were stereotypes about what, it meant to have an Iranian wife at that time. When I was growing up, there was a sense for me as an, an kind of an outsider observing this, there was a sense that my mom was probably the only Iranian person that people had ever met because I grew up in country Victoria. And so there was that otherness as well. So, yeah, because people didn't know Iranians, they didn't know what that actually meant and so they just absorbed the stuff that they had consumed from from the media in terms of the Islamic Republic, not understanding at all that my mum grew up in an era in Iran where they were so free and liberal that it was actually probably less conservative than in Australia, like Australia at the time, you know. And she grew up wearing incredible clothes and like, Wearing a bikini, like that that idea is something so, so so foreign, I think, to what Australians pictured. And I think they pictured her as being like a nice, timid, like village girl, which she absolutely is not when you have met her for one and a half seconds. I feel like I have a different experience because both my parents are from the same country. Um, like my mum is, you know, however many gen white New Zealand and my dad is Māori, so... They were both from New Zealand. And, like, yeah, it was probably a bit controversial. When I asked my mum about it, she actually said, um, I guess it wasn't as controversial as the generation before me, but and definitely the generation after me, it's not as controversial as it was for us. So that's how she framed it. But, like, I have the additional layer of um, really negative mouldy stereotypes of masculinity permeating throughout my family, as in my dad perpetuated domestic violence against my mum and I was raised in a single parent household so that kind of affected me growing up but they they were from the same country so the the Māori people and and Pākehā people had been living alongside each other for like 200 years at the point that they got together so however harmoniously (laughs) colonization colonization (laughs) I feel like we need a little jingle that's just us singing those words yeah 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 from the same country because we colonize you yeah Yeah. (laughs) our country exactly (laughs) and the cultures are uh, quite different as well and what and what is important in multi-culture is definitely not important in white culture and I think there's something there though in the fact that one party didn't have to choose to be in the other person's country and leave behind their family. I know that that doesn't necessarily map out on your dad's story, but just in terms of proximity, it's different. Totally. So have you talked to your mum about what her 20 years in the UK was like? She – it kind of goes back to what I was saying before about this sort of, I think – strength that she puts on to not expose me to the hardship but I think looking back on it now I witnessed it I grew up in a very dad's working class and his mum but um they did the whole like getting good jobs getting good money and then investing that in a life and trying to put it for me basically um so we moved to countryside in England in a place called Gloucestershire part of the Cotswolds very like ye olde roofs classic 
basically cobbled walls vibe, if you can imagine, um, and basically in the middle of nowhere, um, which also adds to this layer because it's very white. But it did mean that we sort of, we lived in the sort of more working class um, neighbouring town and I commuted to this very posh school in a place called Cheltenham, which is funny because Cheltenham in Melbourne is not of that stereotype. Um, also, like something I really wanted to acknowledge today is like of my white passing privilege. So there was also this level of I, I'm one of them, I felt at the time, but I think looking back at it now, internally I wasn't feeling like one of them and I was hiding my Japanese heritage and mum got the got that basically as as a result of me trying to hide it. And I think like the classic story of, you know, pack lunches to school and everyone had had the same sandwiches, crisp situation, and I had like rice, like sushi balls and things that everyone were like, eh, gross, like what's that? Like, which is really funny because like now they're all eating it now, right? Like it's trendy now to go and get sushi. And, and they just dragged you at lunchtime <laughs> for it. Yeah, the irony, right? Like you're going to eat it now? Cool. Like credit me when you're there, but. Yeah. I deserve credit. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I introduced you to it. My mum introduced you to it. <laughs> Were you clocked as an other in that scenario? Yeah. So I think even though I considered myself white passing, the my white peers didn't, I think. I had I had black hair, which apparently was, you know, in comparison to their very fair blonde, you know, fawny brown colours quite different <laughs> people used to call me the grudge in primary school <laughs> oh my god it sounds way worse than now I say it I'm like oh my god that's like awful <laughs> but like this is what I mean I have black hair so like for some reason I'm this Japanese like mythologic like mythical beast monster basically <sighs> they saw my mum at school they could tell that I come from a different background and it's funny like looking back on it even sort of kids, even though they don't understand the intricacies of racial tensions and, and stereotypes and problems um, and systematic issues, they unfortunately pick up on it and they could totally tell that I was different and even though they didn't understand why or weren't articulating why, they made me feel that way. So I think being biracial is a really interesting and complicated terrain to be in because I chose to leverage one half of my identity even though, you know, that's not how I am. I'm both and both can coexist. But at the time I sort of cherry-picked what worked for me um, as a form of survival and I think we feel, well, I, I don't know about you guys, but I felt a lot of guilt for a lot of a lot of years after. You know, it's very, very tricky to and I'm sure you guys kind of get it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I'm not white passing. I'm definitely a brown person. But um, my smallish town um, in New Zealand at the bottom of the South Island, hardly any brown people there. Like I really stuck out like a sore thumb. Also like I'm very tall. I'm like a big, loud, rambunctious gal. Um, and that was my armour. So I was able to be like the funny token brown girl and I leaned all the way into that like I was like call me token like you know like tee hee hee like crushing this part of my soul and wanting to be white and knowing that I wasn't trying to like contort myself into this box so that I could fit in so that I could have friends so that I didn't have to be different even though I really really was and like I've, I've you know felt some type of way about this for a long time that yeah the the I feel ashamed that I spent like over a decade of my life wanting to be white, like desperately. Now I'm like, Bleh. disgusting. Never. I mean, I kind I am still white, but you know, like I'm I'm fully a, a brown person. I'm I'm completely mouldy, you know, now. But at the time, I've just crushed that part of me. That's so interesting because for me, so I kind of. I feel lucky in in the fact that I was able to move to Japan because it was a huge fish slap in the face for me. Yeah, so I, ha I sort of have a theory on, on being biracial. For me, it's sort of like unless you have a situation that you're forcefully put into, you don't really know what 
what being biracial is like you don't really reflect on that necessarily like we're in this society where like you said you're sort of it's survival and you sort of you pick one or the other you do what you do in in the environment that you know and that was me in England for 14 years but then moving to Japan I was forced as a really angsty adolescent 14 year old to look sort of introspectively and reflect on who I was and what my identity was and it threw me for about four five years I had the biggest identity crisis of my life it was I didn't really think about it at the time but I just remember being like what am I I'm not white enough I'm not Asian enough and to me like I think if I'd stayed in England I don't necessarily know if I would have come to that awakening because I probably would have stayed white in my mind mum tried you know she she spoke to me in Japanese and I could kind of roughly understand it, but I would never reply in Japanese. It was always in English. It was like an act of defiance, like I don't want to be part of this culture, like, you know, usual angsty teenager plus an identity crisis on top of that. And, yeah, moving to Japan forced me to to question that and I still – I think moving to Australia was the full circle moment for me. Like until I'd say maybe three or four years ago, I really was very confused on – on what I was because Japan was a whole that was a whole another sort of experience in of, of itself of being of being white tell us tell us it's it's so interesting I've I experienced a really weird sense of I don't actually know what to call it but I faced racism in Japan as a white person because I wasn't Japanese but then it's really convoluted because there was this sort of layer of idolization on top of it that I was white so I got treated like a superior but it was still an othering which I'm still coming to terms with I don't know how to articulate what it was because I think it's a little bit ignorant to call it racism when it's you know the history of white privilege and where where everything fell into place but at the same time it was an othering still that you know felt made me feel like I did not belong in that place. And that's the only way I can sort of relate to, I guess, any other minority discussion on on racism. And I hated how that felt. So I can, I guess, sympathise with that. And I feel like it's really important for us to be allies and speak for those issues because I, I felt it. Have you talked to your parents about that decision to move to Japan when you were 14? Because it sounds like a huge thing to do. Totally. I think I gave my parents a lot of shit for it um, for a long time. Um, when I was when I was there, they did not hear the end of it. Um, I did an international school for a year when I first moved over. Um, and then, yeah, my parents were like, we can't afford this. It's a lot. We're in Japan. We're going to throw you in the deep end. And I went to a local Japanese school instead. What um What was your experience at that local Japanese school, were you accepted to your friends? Short answer, no. <laughs> Very much. I, I think you guys probably have a rough idea of what Japanese schools are like from on the animes and the mangas, but it really is that. You've got these like very strict uniforms. You can't really express, like I wasn't allowed to wear makeup, earrings, like nothing. Like people were measuring the length of my skirt. People were checking my nail length, like now I've got SNS tips on because I think it's a form of recovering from trauma. <laughs> of <not> Nail-based trauma. <laughs> it's the little things when you start looking at it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was super, super strict. So there was that layer. Um, but also I was the only white passing person in, in the whole school of, I think, 1,000, 2,000. It was a big school, like 15 classes per year group. Like it was, it was big and it was very, you guys would probably relate very country. Like it was very like small. Everyone probably knows everyone's family at some point. So it was very, very othering in that respect. So it took me, I think two or three years of pure, just being stubborn (laughs) and refusing to go with that. I was like, I'm British. I'm white. Like, I'm not going to be like these guys. But then that faded after a few years and I was like, 
come on, Elena, like, let's make this work. And then high school was when I moved and you have to do entrance exams to get into high school. But because I couldn't speak Japanese very well, didn't really have any options. So I kind of went to the dropout school. Um, that's what I call it. Um, but it was actually the best thing that could have ever happened to me because it was this dropout girl school that had like these like very like, I guess, not academic themes and like it was kind of like the people that didn't fit in. So funnily enough, I fit in really well with those dropouts and I actually learned that the more sort of, I guess, like average necessarily intellectual um, Japanese people were way more welcoming of me and they sort of really embraced me as one of their friends, which I'd struggled for for sort of the two, three years before that. So it was it was from there. The last three years in Japan were actually amazing. But at the same time, I was very Japanese at that point. So I actually came to Australia, I consider, as a, a Japanese person, which is also confusing, right? Because I'm both. But at the time I was like, I'm, I'm either or because there wasn't anyone else like me to understand that. And then you'd come to Australia and people would look at you and be like, she white though. Like personally I consider myself white passing, but it is interesting when you talk to other people because some people are like, oh, no, you look you look really Japanese like or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I can't see that. And then then you go into this existential vortex of like what makes you white and what makes you Asian? What what is the What is the bar like? And, you know, I, Personally, I don't think there's really an answer. I think you just – you're both, but I think you just then have to make the executive decision yourself on how much privilege you do get. And for me, I feel like I get I get the privileges of being white passing, so that's why I consider myself white passing. Um, but, yeah, I think that's something that every individual who's biracial has to sort of figure out themselves. Does your name flag you as Japanese to people? Like in this, in this, in the context of the conversation of being white passing and not being seen as Japanese, you have kind of a, a mixed name in a way. So there's a really rich and bizarre history behind my name. Um, didn't have one when I moved here. I sort of pretended that I had multiple. Basically, in England, when I grew up. My name on my birth certificate still to this day is Elena Sowery Karts. So my dad's got Polish heritage, I think. Um, so that's the surname of his side, which is technically what my surname is. Um, and then Sowery was my Japanese middle name. Um, that's how mum, you know, they, they got my Japanese culture through that. That was fine, you know, live with that name until I was like 14. Moved to Japan and mum's like, you can't have a Western name at school because it's going to be like a thing that singles you out even more. So I took mum's surname, which is Kunitaki, um, and then I also took Saori as my, as my first name. So Elena got eradicated. <laughs> and in Japan you wear your name as tags on your shirts and on your uniform. Um, I don't know if you guys do that here. Is it the same? It's very militant, yeah. We all had like our surnames written because it's Chinese characters so it's like two – basically symbols. Um, so you'd have it on your, your PE kit and all that stuff. Um, but, yes, yeah, so it would say kunitake on all of my on all of my uniform. But no one called me Saori. So, like, to my friends at school, I'd be like, hey, call me Elena. Like, Saori's and I think so. I'm <laughs> constantly navigating what my name is. Um, and then I still remember at my grad at um, middle school in Japan, they called my name out and everyone was like, who's that? Who's Saori? I'm like, guys, it's me, it's me, it's me. <laughs> so, Hello, I'm here. <laughs> I'm present, it's me. So that that happened. But then, then the whole story about visas and coming to Australia happened. What is my name, right? So for some reason, my name was like bracketed and it was like Elena, bracket salary, carts, bracket kunitake. Became a problem when I needed to sort of apply for new visas. <laughs> They're like, what's your name? And I'm like, oh, I don't know which one it is. Like, oh, oh, it's not a double barrel. They just didn't understand. Anyway, long story short, when I was doing all these like visa applications the past few years to stay here, it just became so much of a head sore because I had like the 
visa office calling me like, who are you? You're a fake person. I've decided now to call myself Elena Kunitaki for like my purposes, for people that I know, because to me, it's a really handy shortcut. To me, it's this weird sort of embracing moment. Like when I was younger, I'd hide my name or hide behind it. But now I'm like, fuck that. I'm going to like show it really proudly and that's my way of doing it. So technically, you know, well, I mean, taking the man's name when you get married is a whole nother problem in and of itself. But (laughs) um, I've yet screwed that system and I'm just using my mum's name. And so I feel like it's a nice shortcut and a mix of both. But, yeah, it's still – I go to like shops and they're like, do you have a membership with us? And I'm like, uh, I think, uh, what do you need? And they're like, what's your name? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> can you do it with the phone number, please? <laughs> <laughs> like it's a nightmare. <laughs> we'll get there one day. <laughs> we'll have one approach at some point. It's funny because I have the reverse issue, which is that I have travelled a bunch of, spent a lot of time overseas in the last 10 years. And so it's a joke for a bunch of my friends that they have seven to 10 Kate Robinson phone numbers in their phones because I've left so many times and let my phone number lapse and then got a new one and then come back for a short time, got a new one, new one, new one, new one, new one. And so sometimes those questions come up and they are like, what's your phone number? And I just, my heart sinks and I know I will never have that information because I have no idea what phone number they will have of mine. Don't ask me, please. And there's a hundred Kate Robinsons. Exactly. exactly. so true. I love that like, um, like full circle claiming your name journey that you're on. Totally. I think. I'm like kind of – I went from being so quiet and hidden about it. And I think like by personality I'm not like incredibly extroverted um, by nature. But I think through the whole like embracing my my race and my background and those sort of things, it sort of pushed me out of my shell a little bit to be quite loud and extroverted about it. We are sort of as daunting as it may be. I feel like biracial people are sort of the the people that can really help progress the conversation and you know although like totally agree like the the strain should not be on minorities all the time um but I do think that there is a beautiful sort of halfway point with people like us because we can kind of be you know that understanding for people that are white people that are you know confused or don't really know what's up maybe we're more approachable I don't know like is there something there I try and sort of have a balance of like come to me let's chat but also, please acknowledge your privilege. Let's have these conversations critically. I have hard boundaries. <laughs> Don't ask me where I'm from. Don't cross that line. <laughs> I will fight you. <laughs> I am interested in exploring that in the context of being an only child because I'm an only child. And first of all, I love other only children. Just putting that out there. We get a really bad rap. Oh, my God. Shout out to all my only children. <laughs> Story of my life. We're not all selfish. Exactly. So part of my experience is that I feel like there's something particular a bit about being the only person in your family who is mixed race. So I think there's actually some kind of solidarity in having siblings and having other people that are navigating that too and who have similar but different experiences. And for me, in my, me, myself and I, I'm the only, literally in the entire world, I am the only mixed race Iranian Australian person that I personally know. That might not be your experience because I think maybe it's a bit more common to be half Japanese, half, half British or half Anglo. And that's been super weird for me to grapple with. So as my fellow only child, help me on this journey. <laughs> that is, I love when people tell me things that I never thought about before. It's like, wow, so true. Totally didn't think about that, but you're so right. I felt like so isolated, I think, growing up. I didn't, like, like you. I think I thought I could go to my parents for that help, but they didn't know what was going on. Like they didn't understand and 
you know, I can't really expect them to understand because, like, they haven't gone through it. And so they, I think they tried their best but no, to no help at all. And then I think I think there's a lot of, for me anyway, like my opinion on being an only child is there's a lot of time to to reflect. <laughs> like I had no friends or like siblings to play with. I was just like thinking about me <laughs> and what what what's going on in this mind of mine and who am I and existential crisis at eight years old. But like yeah, <laughs> I feel like there was a lot of that. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think as an only child you're definitely, my experience and why I'm the biggest advocate for only children in the world is that I think that because you're the, there isn't other children, often you're part of adult conversations more often than maybe if you had other siblings because you're just like there's three people in your family, they're making choices, you're part of those conversations, right? Totally. That's so interesting. Totally. My, fr- like my family didn't really have the line drawn on what was parent what was child like I was eating dinner at like nine o'clock with them Me too. yeah I, I'd always go to friends houses it'd be like 5 30 and they're eating and I'm like when is this exactly like, kids eat first and parents later and I'm like well I wait till dad comes home and we just eat or like we used to watch like they I mean this is really weird that I'm bringing up the grudge again but <laughs> we totally watched the grudge it's like, like horror movies or like yeah, comedy too. like there was no pg like no. you can't watch this with us like this is a and I think, yeah, it's a weird thing because you feel maybe it's, I think, a double-edged sword a little bit. Like you get included in the conversations, but then you also feel the weight of. Exactly. I was way more stressed out as a child than I think other children being allowed to be children were. So interesting. I like that you bring that up because it's totally like the whole theory of intersectionality and like everything's affected by something else. And that's why like I, I love being biracial now because I feel like we're kind of evidence of that like things can coexist like um so I'm now on this train where I'm like celebrating the fact that two contradictories can actually coexist and work in unison not everything is black and white I know yeah totally we talk a lot about like gray areas um like I can I can blame my mum or feel some type of way towards my mum for not bringing Maori culture into our family but she lived below the poverty line, was a single parent working three jobs, raising three kids, did not have time to even consider that. Notwithstanding that she's a white person, has never really experienced racism in that way. So, like, I can feel some type of resentment towards her for that, but also I can't blame her. Totally. I Like, personally, I feel like where we are in society now is we've gotten to a good place where we're talking about this sort of shit. Everyone's kind of being held been told to be held accountable and like we've gotten to a good stage it's going to be interesting from here because I think like there's a lot of people that think they know but it's way more complex than you know an Instagram post says it is and so I think as long as you're like doing the work you need to do the work on the outs on the outskirts of that you need to be constantly learning because I'm constantly learning I thought I knew something about like I thought I knew understood race But like even meeting you guys, like you learn new things all the time. And I think there's a lot of, I think I'm quite sceptical, I think, of of the sort of era that we're in at the moment. And it could be wrong. It could be absolutely delightfully wrong. And everyone could be absolutely doing their homework. But I'm not feeling it. (laughs) I still feel like the angry one. And (laughs) still feel like it's me bringing it up all the time. Like feels pretty performative. From some certain parties. Oscar goes too. Is a little bit. <laughs> sometimes. I try and be positive, but I'm like, oh, but it's me. I'm getting the eye roll still. Like I feel like there's a bit more work and I think this is the area that it's in. It's the grey area, the grey zone where things aren't clear. So people freak out. They're like, I don't get it. You're you're white and Asian. What does that make you like? Uh, are you racist? In uh, like it's this, and it's like, dude, I don't know either. Like, but like, I'm gonna make it work, and like, you need to accept that these oddities can exist. Like, you, and that's the whole point of embracing equality is that like there isn't one way or the other. It it's complex, and we all need to create a world that's like welcoming of that mentality. And we've got a long way to go, I think, because equality isn't all the same. Like, it isn't homogenous. It isn't white. You've spoken about seeing yourself as white passing, but do you see yourself as a person of colour? I know that's a very umbrella term. No, no, it's a really good question. I I think I, I do identify as a person of colour and I think from my experience, learnt, like being ostracised to feel like I'm not one or the other was damaging for me, so I wouldn't put that on someone else. 
Um, so I would say, yes, I'm just as Asian, I'm just as Japanese as my mum. But I think you just then have to carry that acknowledgement of what you get out of white privilege as well. So for me, yes, I'm, I identify. I think that's the funny thing. When I talk about race issues, people maybe look at me like a white person talking about race issues and they forget that I've gone through my own trauma in a weird way and I've seen my mum go through trauma. Like you feel like that as if, as if it's your own when it's your family and, and friends, but in particular your mum when she's going through really awful things and you're at the sort of cusp of that. Like it's a hard thing, but I think I have the confidence now. I think maybe a couple of years ago I'd be like, well, I don't know, like I'm not sure, but like someone talks to me now about it, I'll probably be like, yeah, I'm proud person of colour, but obviously acknowledge my privilege in places, I think, is the for me the best way to proceed. I don't know what you guys think, but. Uh, yeah, I think I've, I've felt a lot of imposter syndrome at various moments in my life, um, but I think it's very similar to what you said in the sense that I very much feel Persian and I have experienced my mum going through what it means to be Persian in an Australian context and that has been something that has been pretty pivotal in terms of how I have conceived myself in the world. I think it becomes difficult for me because I have also grappled with maybe a little bit of the reverse of what you were talking about in a Japanese context in terms of like white being superior but for instance I feel like sometimes maybe a bit earlier on in in my early 20s essentially I feel, felt a bit uh, fetishized for being biracial and being exotic which makes me feel gross because it is that kind of power hierarchies like we love that you're in other but not fully in other Ugh, the palatable oh conversation I have a lot it's the palatable mix you know you're 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 exotic but not too exotic you know it's awful I think I feel a lot of guilt with that like I think I definitely like feel like I've gotten away with things by being the palatable if anything and I'll acknowledge that and call it out for what it is because it is what it is and I think no one else should tell you what is what standard there is that's for you to decide so but I can totally totally hear you out on that I feel like I've been at the receiving end of that a lot the the palatable moment kind of translates across a bunch of things like you can be palatable in terms of looking palatable or you can be palatable in terms of your attitude oh it makes me sick sometimes I totally get it um I think that's why like in my like outside life I try and be as loud as possible now I think because to your point about the attitude thing I'm like okay well if society is going to view me as a palatable mix then maybe I need to just be really loud and shut that down how does your identity stuff play out in terms of the work that you do um I think people forget (laughs) that I am of mixed race because I'm so Australian passing my accent is fairly Aussie. I've picked up a lot of the slang and vernacular. I went to uni here, so I got all the advertising lingo and stuff given to me like any of my other peers did. So I actually forget sometimes because I'm so good at hiding the parts of my identity that to, to survive and thrive, it's a skill, I believe. You learn how to whip XYZ out when it's appropriate, which I'm actually trying to untrain myself to do. I'm unwiring that. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Amazing. So cathartic to hear. <laughs> like it's like a backwards process now where I'm like, stop hiding that part of you. You know, stop bringing that part out of you. I do have thankfully a few Harfi friends and my partner as well. Like he's Aussie, but he, he studied in Japan for a year and you can speak it quite well. So like when I'm around him and my Harfi friends, I, it's this rare moment where I and my family where I can be both. I like switch out a language, like uh, like reference some things in Japanese, some in English. Like also like personality is different. I think in ja- in my Japanese side of me is quite like sort of vibrant and energetic. I like to look at it as very sort of young and fun. At work, I don't think I get the Japanese side out of me at all, to be honest. I think it might seep in without me knowing in some of the things I express and some of the things I come up with because like a lot of my job is 
conceptualizing and coming up with ideas and concepts and thoughts. So I think there would be some of me in what I do. I just don't think I know which bits are what, but I think at work I'm definitely Australian, went to uni here, Elena, who, or maybe like Elena from overseas, maybe. Okay. But not like Elena in her truest form, which only a very few of my friends, I think, actually over here anyway, see. Like I have one really good friend who's half um, Anglo, half Chinese, Australian Chinese, and through talking with her, she's a work friend as well. She works in um, production. So, like, she has very much similar thoughts to me, like casting. She wants to break down stereotypes and things like that. Um, she she made me realise that, like, when we were having just chats on the phone that, you know, there is this, like, huge thing about our identities being mixed and people here, like our friends here, don't know about that. It's actually really nice, like, me and her and – um. Our other friend who used to work with us who's, I believe, Malaysian. Anyway, we have a group chat with us three and we often talk about so like Asian stuff or like, you know, oh, there's this Asian comedy event, let's go to that. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm Asian. I forget yes. about that. It's like so nice to be like welcomed into that conversation. Like when we were saying like people spell my name wrong, I, I send it to the girls in that group chat and I'm like, oh my God, look, this happened again. And I'm like, oh, I am Japanese. I just need to put myself in situations to remind myself of that. And I think we all need to – it's something that, you know, we can't possibly do all the time because no one else is doing it for us, you know, unless you find the right people who can. I feel like it's a hard thing being biracial. You're never fully – I don't know what you guys think. I'm never fully 100% me, really. How do I express thing. being biracial today? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 3 p.m. How's it now? <laughs> I really relate to that idea of having specific people in your life that you have these conversations with, though. I think something that I've been trying to think about this year is whether I'm actually isolating myself from having these conversations with other friends because I, I have basically just put myself in a bit of a I've I've put people in a bit of a box to be honest and being like this is going to be a safe place to have this conversation these are the people that I will have these conversations with whether it's other POC friends or other mixed race friends in particular but then I I feel like I'm hiding part of myself from those other groups as well and then I'm not giving that part of me which is so pivotal to who I am to those groups too. So it's a really weird disconnect where I don't want to be an educator in my friendships and I don't want to – but I also don't want to hide myself. Totally. I like I struggle with this so much. I'm like who am I today to this person – X, Y, Z, oh, I don't feel comfortable showing this, you know, does that make me fake? I'm not showing my real colour. But I think like where I've landed with it is you only you know where you feel safe and comfortable and like no one can force you to, to force that process. It takes time and, you know, sometimes maybe we'll never find the safe protection that we feel with some people. Yeah, the personal is political every day of the week. Mm-hmm. 100%. Kate did this wonderful exhibition when she was the feminist in residence at Queen Vic Women's Centre. Um, I submitted a piece that was an embroidery that said, not your token brown friend. This is me pushing back against my teenage years, all of that. So I did an accompanying voice note with it. And um, Kate was being interviewed by SBS, was it? And my voice note was part of that. So I sent it to my mum. And I was like, oh, mum, listen to this. Like, this is a cool thing and, like, this is a cool time. Um, my bits towards the end. So she listened to it and she was like, whoa, that's intense. And I was like, okay, Raywin, <laughs> what? <laughs> and then, so I messaged back saying, it's my life. Do you know what she said back to that? True debt. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing I'm interested to know from you is where – now you see yourself in terms of media, in terms of things that you consume, any hot tips, recommendations for people that are listening to this podcast? The grudge. <laughs> Don't try me. <laughs> this is going to seriously haunt my nightmares. It's come back into my <laughs> You mentioned it twice. I know. That was the weird thing. That wasn't even intentional. <laughs> One 
thing that was really interesting to me, which I found recently in terms of music. So as a kid, I was obsessed with Gwen Stefani because she had. <laughs> oh, no, Harajuku girl. Exactly. So like <laughs> at the time I was like, oh, my God, I can't see myself in media. Like there's no one. Oh, my God, Gwen Stefani has four muted Japanese girls in her band that she's completely ripping off. <laughs> That's me. I was like, amazing. So, like, I bought the CD. It was my favourite album of all time, right? Didn't think. Oh, my God. I, in fact, also had this CD. Oh, my God. I did too. It is a pretty good album. <laughs> Annoyingly. This shit is bananas. <laughs> all of that girl, great track. Um, but didn't realise until last year. I mean, I kind of, I knew in more recent years that it's slightly problematic in terms of how she used the girls in the, in the songs and, and in the structure. But... I didn't really think about representation and what it means to me until I discovered an artist called Rina Sawayama. Oh, my God. When you were talking about your British, um, you couldn't go back to Britain and be a citizen, that exact thing happened to her, didn't it? Or, yeah, I think she couldn't She couldn't submit as um, in the in the and Brit the Awards. Yeah, yeah the Brit like Awards. That, yeah. yeah, she couldn't. She wasn't considered a, a British citizen to do that. Um, but, yeah, I didn't – I'd, like, seen her a couple of years ago somewhere and then didn't think anything of it and then um, – found her album last year and the themes that she sings in her songs are so relatable to me. I know she's she is Japanese descent, full Japanese descent, I believe, but she grew up in, in England. So to me, she's a bit of a reflection in some ways. And when I was listening to her album, like I actually bought her, her album and I bought a record player and I was like, my first album is going to be Rena. So that's what I did. It's got significant meaning, as corny as that is. Um and as I was listening to it, I was like, oh, no, no, this is representation. It's not Harajuku Girls and Gwen Stefani. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all I had when I was eight <laughs> and singing This Shit Is Bananas as an eight-year-old, which is also problematic in its own way. But, yeah, when, you know, when I was a kid, that's all I had. So it gave me a lot of hope to be like, oh, like kids these days might have more representation. Like because I'm getting it at 26 and, you know, but better late than never for me. But this is what it, it feels like to be represented in media. And because I still think I think the thing with being biracial is like, you know, like considering myself white passing at times, I'm like, oh, there's like white people everywhere, like whatever, like I can relate. But you don't actually relate. Like it's not actually representation. You think it is. But until you feel real representation, you don't know what that feels like. Because I, I working in advertising, I see it all the time. Like it is a daily struggle to get conversations of diversity in with peers, with external companies, with clients. They really don't understand it. And it's a really uncomfortable conversation to be having, to be honest with you. And that's what I'm trying to train and constantly learn is how to have these conversations. And basically by speaking up is my first way of doing it. I reckon I'm going to stumble um, and have stumbled with these conversations because you get a lot of shut down like stopping difficult oh why are you doing the token like you know like blah 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 it's like no 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 like it's actually not hard to just cast a diverse mix of people that's not tokenism at all like you don't get it representation of the society we live in it's just real life (laughs) it's really not hard to be but I think people struggle they're like they don't know how to respond but I feel like it's not necessarily something at the top of everyone's minds and that's got to change for me. You've got this weird bird's eye view where like you're consuming media but you're also creating media and try- – oh, love this. She ch- hopefully. At the, I'm still a bit of a cog at the minute. Like I'm still a puny little speck of dust in the industry but I'm hoping in, you know, and especially having friends who think similarly, it's like quite sort of hopeful and nice and pos- the positive – the positive is there to me, I think. So it's like that's some inside goss for you guys, the people who don't really work on the inside. There are people trying to make the change and I'm hoping it'll come eventually. So beautiful. Oh, my God, I just remembered one thing. Yes. <laughs> that I completely forgot and if I don't say it now, I never will. So my mum, in Japan you call mixed race kids halfies or what halfu is what you call it and that just basically means half. Um, but – I kind of say half is, is the way I call it. Um, anyway, that term has been around for ages um, and it's kind of this weird like you kind of get um, idolised, tokenized. like it's it's a thing in Japan being ra- biracial because I think it's more obvious than what it is in 
um, more multicultural environments. Like you stick out more and people are like, oh, like they're a halfy, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the term half to me is is inherently problematic really in that like you're, you're half of something, you're never full of something. Um, so my mum said to me, it's such a funny story. Um, I think when I was like 15 or 16, she was like, Elena, Elena, like you're not half, you're double. And I was like, oh. But at the time I was like, yeah, but that doesn't sound cool, mum. Like double's not a thing. Don't make it a thing. It's half, it's half, it's half. But now I'm older, I'm like, mum, she ain't wrong. Like if you view it like that. She's cracked the code. She's got it. She's cracked the Da Vinci code. She gets it. You're not half, you're double. Oh, my God. Thought it was a nice little bliss. I love it. Makes me want to cry. She doesn't even know she said it. She's just so like, yeah, you're double, you're double. And I'm like, mom, that means something to me 10 years later. <laughs> I'm going to hold on to that and I'm going to talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> Giving me the content, the material I need. <laughs> oh, so cute. I'm going to take that energy into my life, I think. How good is it? I just remembered and I was like, if I'm not going to say it now, I'm never going to say it. I love it so, so, so much. If you don't have anything else, Maria, then I reckon that's it. Thank you so, 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 so much. Thank you for giving me my new life catchphrase. Oh, my God. Let's credit my mum. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'll pass it on. Credit to your mum. It's been so amazing to talk to you. I see you, my only child, mixed race sister. <laughs> oh, thank you for enlightening me to this this branch of my identity I didn't even think about. Sorry to give you more crisis to go through. <laughs> I'll add it to the part. We'll, we'll get through. We'll get through. Exactly. No, but it's been so nice to talk to you and I really appreciate it. No, thank you. It's been really cathartic and lovely to talk to other fellow biracial friends about this. So hopefully this gets the conversation out to others. And thank you for listening to Being Biracial. This podcast is hosted, edited and produced by us, Kate Robinson and Maria Birchmoranger. Just two women making a podcast and singing Beyonce. The music you're listening to is not by Beyonce because we can't afford her. It's by The Green Twins. And this is their amazing song, Take It Slow. You can find it on Spotify. This work was developed with the support of Footscray Community Arts Centre through the really, really generous and amazing use of their podcast studio here on the lands of the Kulin Nation. If you are biracial and interested in being interviewed, please get in touch. Or if you're an ally and want to send us some questions or you're interested in sponsoring our podcast, please hit us up. You can find us on Instagram at Being Biracial Podcast. Or you can send us an email at beingbiracialpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, why not subscribe? Bye. Bye.